Introduction, Part 6 of Commentary on the Gospel of John, Book 9, by Cyril of Alexandria. Translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 36. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Peter, again with his usual curiosity, is anxious to learn more, and busies himself about the significance of Christ's words, not yet, as seems probable, comprehending the real meaning of what has been said, yet feeling with all the force of his fiery zeal that it was his duty to follow Christ. And in this matter most admirable is the behavior of the disciples for certainly no one would allow that it was only the chief disciple who was in ignorance while the others fully understood the matter and that this was why he asked the question i should rather say that they yielded to him as chief among them the privilege of speaking first and of taking the initiative in courageous inquiry for the speaking into the ears of their master was no light and easy matter even for those who were reputed to be somewhat and the conduct of peter is no less admirable who is harassed by no fear of being thought sluggish in the comprehension of those matters of which he was ignorant but zealously seeks for enlightenment considering that the profit he will derive from gratifying his love of knowledge will be of more value than an unseasonable sense of shame and so in this also he is a pattern to those that live after him for we ought never i think to pass over the words of our teachers even though they may not be so very distinct merely for the sake of seeming to be shrewd people and very quick in intelligence but rather to investigate the meaning and search it out wisely in the teaching at first delivered to us for our profit for the knowledge of what is useful is far nobler than a vain semblance of wisdom and far better is it to learn a thing in reality than merely to seem to know all about it jesus answered him whither i go thou canst not follow me now but thou shalt follow afterwards well knowing that the grief caused to his disciples would be heavy and intolerable if he said plainly that he was about to enter into heaven and to leave them on earth bereaved of his presence though he would ever be with them as god he employs a style of speech wisely adapted to their present feelings and gently refrains from giving full information of what was in his mind and thus seeing them in ignorance he suffers them so to continue for the wise are accustomed occasionally to overshadow with weightier words things that seem likely to cause pain for although in returning on his way to the heavens above he was most especially presenting himself to god the father as the first-fruits of humanity and although what was being done was to secure the advantage of all mankind for he consecrated for us a new way of which the human race knew nothing before nevertheless to the holy disciples in their earnest longing ever to be with him it seemed unendurable that they should be separated from christ although he was ever with them in the power and cooperation of the spirit finding therefore the blessed peter ignorant of the force of the words used christ leaves him as well as the other disciples in that condition 
not at once explaining fully the exact import of what he had said but waiting in his kindness until he should have finished the teaching that would be able to strengthen them to bear it this indeed we shall perceive him doing in the words that soon follow for he says to them it is expedient for you that i go away for if i go not away the comforter will not come unto you he hastens however as god to promise the disciple who desires so to do that he shall follow him earnestly and be with him in all reality with none to check his zeal saying whither i go thou canst not follow me now but thou shalt follow afterwards and the saying is pregnant with a twofold signification one part of which is very evident and obvious while the other is rather more indistinct and wrapped in mystery for he means to say that peter could not possibly follow him now in his passage to the world above and in his return to heaven yet that he would follow him hereafter namely when the honour and glory for which the saints are ever hoping is conferred upon them by christ when they come to the city in the heavens to reign with him for ever but the words also contain another meaning the nature of which i will explain the disciples had not yet been clothed with the power from on high neither had they received the strength that was to invigorate them and mould to courage their human dispositions i mean the gift of the holy ghost and so they were not able to wrestle with death and engage in a conflict with terror so hard to face and surely on another ground since it was fitting for christ alone and reserved specially for him to be able to shatter the power of death it was unlikely that others should appear engaged in this work before him for to be freed from the fear of death could surely mean nothing else than to despise death as being powerless at all to harm us wherefore in our view at least even the blessed prophets used to dread the approach of death when it had not been rendered powerless by the resurrection of christ and it was from a right understanding of this that paul said that the word who was from god the father and in god laid hold of the seed of abraham that through the death of his holy flesh he might bring death to naught and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage for the saving passion of christ is the first means that ever brought release from death and the resurrection of christ has become to the saints the beginning of their good courage in meeting it as therefore our natural life had failed as yet to crush the power of death and had not even destroyed the terror that it cast over our souls the disciples were still somewhat feeble in the presence of dangers therefore the lord graciously intimates that peter should be crucified when the time had come and thereby should follow the footsteps of his master and in the words whither i go thou canst not follow me now but thou shalt follow afterwards he obscurely implies that now his mind is not firmly enough prepared for so severe a trial for if it is not the death of peter to which christ darkly alludes in these words why is it that 
although admittedly all the other holy apostles have before them the promise that they shall continually be with christ and follow him at the time of the resurrection when a spotless life is secured to them amid all the blessings for which they hope nevertheless he here applies the force of his words individually to peter alone nay it is abundantly evident that in special reference to peter he dimly shadows forth what will happen to him in after time in illustration of this he has explained the matter more distinctly in another place where he says when thou wast young thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest but when thou shalt be old thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and others shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not now this he spake adds the evangelist signifying by what manner of death he should glorify god for even though suffering for christ's sake is a thing delightful for the saints yet the danger is not wished for by them but still it must be endured when of necessity it is brought upon them therefore also he bid us pray that we fall not into temptation thirty seven peter saith unto him lord why cannot i follow thee even now i will lay down my life for thee what is there he means that prevents or that can keep him back from following his master now that his deliberate aim is to die for christ's sake reckoning this as his proudest boast for the utmost of all dangers and the extremest violence of the implacable enemy of persecutors have no effect beyond the range of the flesh for with the flesh alone has death to deal and he that is ready and fully prepared even for this extreme would not easily be hindered from his purpose or give up his intense conviction as to the duty of following to the end the zeal of peter was most ardent and the extent of his promise excessive yet one might see that the power latent in him was not inconsiderable or rather the issue of the events themselves would convince one of this one point however must be considered our saviour christ speaking now in one way and now in another of his ascension into heaven says that peter will not follow him now but will follow him hereafter as soon namely as his apostolate is fulfilled and when the fit season has come to summon the bodies of the saints to the city above whereas peter himself protests that he is now ready even to risk his life going as it were by a different way and not coming by a direct course to the meaning of the words and i think his language must imply this failing as yet to attach to what has been spoken by christ its exact signification he believes that the lord intends possibly to pass over to some of the wilder villages in judea or even to visit foreign peoples who will after carefully listening so violently dissent from the words which he will be likely to speak that the daring plots of the pharisees will seem feeble compared with the base designs of other jews and the madness inherent in them will be shown to be of the very mildest type for this reason he declares that he will suffer nothing to interfere with his following christ he does not absolutely promise to die 
but says that if the need should arise he will not shrink from death now there is a passage exactly similar to this in the previous part of this book and i will proceed to tell you where it occurs at one time christ was sojourning among the galileans to avoid the fury of the jews their ungovernable temper and their unbridled insolence in speech and great was the wonder excited in those quarters by his marvellous deeds but when the brother of mary and martha had died i mean of course lazarus he as god knew of it and forthwith said to his disciples our friend lazarus has fallen asleep but i go that i may awake him out of sleep hereupon the disciples affectionately reply the jews were but now seeking to stone thee and goest thou thither again and when christ is on the point of starting and urgently tells them that he must certainly return to the country of the jews thomas who is called didymus said unto his fellow disciples let us also go that we may die with him i believe that peter's object in speaking is pregnant with some similar idea for he thinks perhaps as i said just now that jesus is on the eve of departing to preach somewhere else among people at whose hands he will be exposed to danger therefore he himself also in his uncontrollable affection for christ declares that his zeal now to defend his master will be invincible and irresistible meaning that there is nothing left in the world that is strong enough to check his devotion now that he has convinced himself that he must follow christ seeing that he is ready and willing even to die in his master's cause thirty eight jesus answereth wilt thou lay down thy life for me verily verily i say unto thee the cock shalt not crow till thou hast denied me thrice wonderful as the zeal of peter in this matter may be his promises are beyond his power to fulfil christ however with the gloom of the threatening tempest in his mind knowing well how severe will be the temptation and how bitter the persecution seems as it were to shake his head in sorrow and then unfolding to himself the whole extent of his sufferings as though it were present to his bodily eyes beholding the surpassing fury of the jews in their madness and seeing clearly all that will come to pass in that hour he exclaims as though to say dost thou o peter lay down thy life for me and sayest thou that thy fear in this matter is as nothing and supposest thou that thou wilt be strong enough to overcome the trials that will encompass thee nay thou knowest not the grievous weight of the coming temptation for the suffering that lies before thee is beyond thy strength to endure thy heart shall fail thee utterly even though thou wouldst not have it so thrice shalt thou deny me and that too in one single night we must surmise that jesus means to speak somewhat to this effect yet herein again it is fitting that we should admire the kindness to mankind that appeared in him for having predicted that the strength of peter's courage will not be commensurate with the tone of his zealous assertions but will fail and flag so utterly as to yield at the mere alarm of a coming danger 
he added not one single word of threatening perhaps for this reason that peter had not spoken under any divine impulse at all events for some reason or other he does not hold out any threat of chastisement against one who suffered from human infirmities for he knew that the nature of man was as yet enfeebled and unable to endure the threat of death death had not yet been deprived of its power through his resurrection and was still boastfully vaunting against the mind of all men still strong enough to crush even by fear in that alone the hardiest and bravest of heroes for human nature being unnaturally subjected to death yields to death as to a conquering power or rather used to yield at that time but now that our saviour has burst its bonds the approach of death is delightful to those who love christ even though it come in bitterness and pain for the everlasting life has arisen in its stead destroying the power of corruption and let no one here again imagine that peter's denial and failure were caused by the words of christ he is not speaking by way of imposing any obligation on the disciple or drawing him on by constraint to the sufferings of which he speaks but rather he means to predict to his disciple exactly what is god he knows will most surely and certainly come to pass but seeing that all that happened to the men of former times has been written for the admonition of those who live after them let us now say somewhat necessary to our edification drawing our conclusions from this passage i do not think that we ought to make any rash vows before god or to promise to perform what may sometimes be beyond our power as though we could control human events and i say this in regard to the charges to which we render ourselves liable in case of failure especially i consider that hasty statements such as i will do this or i will do that as the case may be are not far removed from arrogance for in all cases where one may have deliberately determined to undertake any matter wishing to carry it out successfully one's duty is always to use those words of the very wise disciple if the lord will and we live for while i maintain that a zeal for good works must be inherent in the souls of the godly as well as eager willingness to carry these virtuous resolves with all our might into effect yet our duty is to pray for the successful means of gaining this end through the gracious blessing that is from above and not to make rash promises as though success lay already in our own grasp thus we shall be able to keep unbroken our promises to god of all that is good and we shall have our feet clear of blame according to the saying of the greek poet and on another authority better is it not to vow to any than to vow and not pay chapter fourteen let not your heart be troubled by saying that peter's courage will fail him so utterly that he will deny his master thrice and will suffer so sad a downfall in one single night he almost seems by the overwhelming weight of his words to arouse in the disciples the extremity of terror at the dangers before them 
whence it may very well have happened that the other disciples began at once to reason with one another saying what can be the nature the extent or the exceeding heaviness of that dread of coming troubles and of that temptation so irresistible as to attack the chief among us and overcome him not once only but many times by the same assault and that within so brief a space of time surely who among us will escape a yet worse plight or how can any other among us withstand such an attack when peter wavers and yields as of necessity to the grievous weight of the trials that beset him vainly it seems that we have endured toils for the sake of our duty in following him our efforts are ending only in the exhaustion of our vital powers though they seem to hold out to us a prospect of life with god there is surely nothing improbable in supposing that the disciples were thus reasoning in their inmost thoughts and since it was needful to restore again their drooping spirits he introduces as it were the necessary antidote to the reasonings and fears that his words had aroused and bids them arm themselves with a calm and untroubled spirit saying to them let not your heart be troubled notice however in how guarded a manner he promises them the forgiveness of their coming feebleness of spirit he does not say plainly i will forgive you even in spite of your weakness or i will be present with you none the less although you deny me and forsake me his object therein being not to completely remove their fears of shame or completely take away their suspicions of failure lest he should seem to make out their error to be a light matter and teach them to regard as of no account the blame they would incur in their denial of him but in bidding them not be troubled he placed them as it were on the borderland betwixt hope and fear so that if they fell into weakness and suffering in their human frailty the hope of his clemency might help them to recovery while the fear of stumbling might urge them to fall but seldom since they had not yet been endowed with the power never to fail at all not having as yet been clothed with the power from above from on high i mean the grace that comes through the spirit he bids them therefore not to be troubled teaching them at once that it was fitting that those who were prepared for the conflict and ready to enter on the struggles for the sake of the glory that is on high should be altogether superior to feelings of cowardice for an untroubled mind is a great help towards a courageous temper at the same time with somewhat obscure and not very distinct intimations yet certainly sowing the seed of a germinant hope of forgiveness if ever it should really happen to them in their human weakness to fall away into cowardice for a mind that is not yet established by the grace that comes from above is timid and easily upset and very apt to be disturbed for this reason also surely the very wise paul prays for certain to whom he is writing in the words and the peace of christ which passeth all understanding shall guard your hearts for this is in reality to be untroubled in heart ye believe in god believe also in me he is making an able soldier out of one who but now was a coward 
and while the disciples were smarting with the anxieties of fear he bids them to take to themselves the terrible power of faith for thus are we safe and not otherwise according surely to the song of the psalmist the lord is my illumination and my saviour whom shall i fear the lord is the shield of my life of whom shall i be afraid for if the all-powerful god fights for us and shields us who could ever have power to harm us and who will by any chance advance to such a height of power as to keep the elect in subjection to him and to force them to submit to the evil designs of his perverse imagination or who could take by his spear and lead captive those that wear the panoply of god faith therefore is a weapon whose blade is stout and broad that drives away all cowardice that may spring from expectation of coming suffering and that renders the darts of evil-doers utterly void of effect and utterly profitless of success in their temptations and this being the nature of faith we must further notice another point christ bade them believe not in god alone but also on himself not implying thereby that he is at all different from the one who is in his nature god i mean as regards identity of essence but that to believe in god and to suppose that the province of faith must be wholly bound up in this one phrase is rather a peculiar characteristic of the jewish imagination whereas the inclusion of the name of the son within the compass of faith in god indicates the acceptance of an injunction of evangelic preaching for those at least who are rightly minded must believe in god the father and not merely in the son but also in the fact of his incarnation and in the holy ghost for the persons of the holy and consubstantial trinity are distinguished both by difference of names and by the peculiar qualities and special offices of each for the father is father and not son the son again is son and not father and the holy ghost is the spirit peculiar to the godhead and yet the trinity is summed up into a common unity of essence so that our creed gives us not three gods but one god still i maintain that we must preserve accurately the definitions of our faith not content with saying we believe in god but fully explaining our confession and attaching to each person the same measure of glory for in our minds there should be no difference as to the intensity of our faith our faith in the father is not to be greater than our faith in the son or even than our faith in the holy ghost but one and the same is the extent and the manner of our confession uttered in regard to each of the three persons with the same measure of faith in such a way that herein again the holy trinity may appear in unity of nature so that the glory that encircles it may be seen in unchallenged perfection and our souls may display our faith in the father and in the son even in his incarnation and in the holy ghost and i believe no man if he were wise would make any distinction between the word of god and the temple formed from the virgin at least as regards the question of sonship 
for there is one lord jesus christ according to the saying of paul but let him who would sever into two sons him who is one and one alone know surely that he is denying the faith the inspired paul for instance in working out very excellently and accurately the doctrine on this point would have us confess our belief not simply in christ as the only begotten but also in him as made like unto us that is made man and as having both died and risen again from the dead for what does he say the word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt say with thy mouth jesus is lord and shalt believe in thy heart that god raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation now if we believe on the son as having risen again who was he that died so that he might rise again but it is evident that he is reckoned to have died according to the flesh for his own body was imprisoned in the bonds of death and restored to life again for it was a body that shared in our natural life though containing in itself in full perfection that peculiar indwelling power so mysteriously united to it namely an energy capable of bestowing life whensoever therefore any one shall sever these two natures and in separating the flesh from him who corporally dwelt therein shall dare to speak of two sons let him know that he is believing on the flesh alone for the divine scriptures teach us to believe on him who was crucified and died and rose again from the dead as being no other than the word of god himself not so much in regard to identity of essence for the body of christ is body and not word though it be the body of the word but rather in respect of veritable sonship and if any one were to think that herein we are not speaking with all possible accuracy he would have to come forward and show us the word who is from god dead as regards his divine nature a thing which it is impossible or rather impious even to conceive end of introduction part six